Good morning, Boker Tov. First of all, a reminder, you can sponsor the Parsha Shir any given week. Speak to Linda or anyone in the office, and uh, we would welcome your support and your sponsorship. This week we have the privilege of studying Parsha Zerah together. Baisalavichik pointed out it was not a coincidence that we always read this Parsha. We read Parsha Zerah either on the Shabbos preceding Rosh Chodesh Elul or as it is this year on Rosh Chodesh Elul itself. This Parsha is highly related to and connected to the themes of Elul, personal growth, change, of taking responsibility, of the free will and the choices we make. That's the opening Pasa. The Rav pointed out, it's a debate between Rashi and the Ramban, but this Pasuk at least seems to be the source of the concept of Bechira Chavshis. This Pasuk is what empowers us with the greatest gift that Hashem, the greatest gift that God bestowed upon us, which is the gift of free will, the gift of choice. We don't live fatalistic lives. We're not passive to our own destiny, but we wake up each and every day and we make choices, and the choices we make shape our reality. Interesting, we call philosophically, we call it Bechir Chavshis, we call it free will. When the Rambam records this notion, this axiom, that we make choices, the Rambam doesn't call it Bechira. Rather, the Rambam calls it Rishus. Rishus Nesuna La'adam. Permission was given to mankind in order to choose, in order to shape their reality. Rabbi Salavichik pointed out what's the difference between Bechira and Rishus. So in Israel, when they hold elections, they're called Bechirot. When you have elections, you make a choice from a list of candidates. There's a limited list from which you choose. Whereas the Rambam is telling us that the list is, our list has no boundaries. It's limitless. We can choose, we can shape our reality, we can choose our destiny, not from a limited menu, but a limitless menu from which we can, from which we can choose. So this Pasuk, this Pasha, is what empowers us. Hashem didn't create us to be robots, to be automated, to do or not do exactly what He wants. But rather, we wake up, wake up every day, and it's what gives meaning to life. It's what animates our lives with purpose. We make the right choices, it yields a sense of closeness, a relationship with Hashem. We make the wrong choices, it pushes us away, it drives a wedge, it creates a distance. And just like, and we talked about this last week, the metaphor of marriage, the metaphor of friendship, the metaphor of parent-child, each relationship in this world is a metaphor that informs, at least a little bit inspires, another uh, aspect of our relationship with Hashem, all relationships are nurtured by the choices that we make. It's what it means, schar mitzvah mitzvah. What it means is, you know, the reward for doing a mitzvah is the mitzvah. What does that mean? So if my wife asks me to do something and I do it, do I receive an external reward? She said, please make sure the garbage is at the curb, it's Sunday night or it's Wednesday night. Please make sure the garbage is at the curb, it's garbage pickup. I can't fall asleep unless I know the garbage cans are at the curb. And I am equally on my way to bed. But I say, you know what? It means something to her. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take the garbage. Is there some reward? No. The reward is the sense of closeness that's felt as a result of the act of the choice that I've made. If I say, good luck, old lady, you bring the garbage to the curb, I'm exhausted, I'm going to sleep. You want it out there? You bring it out there. So is there some external punishment that's levied upon me? Yeah, I won't be eating for a while. I'll need to find a place to sleep. 
there's no external punishment that comes. The punishment is the wedge that was drived within the, driven within the relationship. So, schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward for doing a mitzvah is that you feel closer to Hashem. And when you miss out, when you do a chait, a chait is a miss, a missed opportunity. The result of the missed opportunity is the wedge we've driven within our own relationship. So, and the Rav said, it's not a coincidence. We always read this parsha either right before or on Rosh Chodesh Elul. Because as we begin Elul, we don't feel fatalistic. Look, it is what it is. I am who I am. I'm not changing. This is life. This is how I was programmed. This is how I was designed. No. The choices have been placed before us. We shape our reality. We choose who we want to be. I spoke about earlier this week. You can listen online. The Slonim Rebbe's perspective on this Pasuk. Slonim Rebbe asks a series of questions. He says, number one, he says, why is it called bracha uklala? It should be schar and onesh. I've placed before you reward and punishment. Do the right things, you're rewarded. Do the wrong things, you're punished. Why is it called blessing and curse, not reward and punishment? Number two, what's with the obsession with hayom? In our parsha, we see hayom. I placed before you hayom. The bracha is if you listen, hayom. The klalas, if you don't listen, hayom. Over and over again, Hayom, today, 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 why? And blessing, curse, no saying, Lefnechem, God places a curse before us? What do you mean He places the curse before us? And why does it say Im? When it comes to Losishmu, if you don't listen, it's Im. But when it comes to when you do listen, it's Asher Tishmu. So one is Im, if you don't listen, and one is Asher, when you do listen. He asks a series of questions. He gives his own interpretation to this opening Pasuk, which is very beautiful. It talks about finding our own mission in life. And the Re'eh, when God says, I've placed before you, what God is saying is, I put clues all around you of who you're meant to be and what you're meant to accomplish and what your life should all be about. We're all created uniquely, individually, and each of us has our own mission. No two of us are the same. How do we know what we're meant to accomplish, who we're meant to be. Re'eh, says Hashem, I've given you clues. Hayom, every day I give you clues. Bracha uklala, your reaction to the clues, your capacity to decipher the clues determines whether it's a bracha uklala. Again, we went through that Salaam Rebbe, you could listen online. But I'll tell you one other interpretation. I probably mention it every year because it's one of my favorite. It really is, it seems like a non sequitur. Hayom, right there is, why Hayom today? And I think maybe what Moshe was telling the people is, what is it that God placed before us? Hayom. The concept of the here and now. The concept of Hayom. What is that concept of Hayom, the here and now? We confront our own mortality. We realize that we're very vulnerable, very temporary beings. We're very finite. All we have is right now. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? How many people who had so many plans for the future, God forbid, God forbid, never experienced or saw that future because of the diagnosis of a terminal illness, because of a horrible accident or disaster. All we have is hayom. Our mortality instills within us that sense of right now, the here and now. The question is, what do we do with that notion of our mortality? Confronting our mortality could lead to one or two opposite directions. Confronting our mortality could, use, could lead to a sense of carpe diem. You know what? Nothing matters. I'm quitting my job. I'm leaving my wife. I'm going to explore the world. I have to live the here and now because who knows if I'll make it to tomorrow. A frivolous life. A life that's unproductive. A life which is self-centered because you say, Hayom, all I have is right now. 
I'm going to indulge in the pleasures of right now. Or it could lead to the opposite conclusion. Confronting our mortality, Hayom can say, all I have is right now, I've got to accomplish, I have to achieve, I have to spend quality time with the people I love, I have to strive, I have to have ambition to give meaning to the Hayom, to the right now. And that's bracha uklalo. My attitude to Hayom, Hashem says, I've placed before you Hayom. I've placed before you a feeling of vulnerability, of being fragile, of your mortality. And that feeling can lead to a klala, that feeling could lead you to live a lifestyle which is a curse, or that feeling can be a bracha. It can lead to embracing your life in a way which is a blessing. The Rebbe HaKadosh, the Rebbe, the author of the Yitav Lev, says that all the parshios of Sefer Dvarim, Re'eh included among them, are a formula, a prescription for this time of year. I mentioned the Rav said, we always read parshios Re'eh, somehow associated with Rosh Chodesh Elul. So listen to how the Sefer Yitav Lev sees it. You listening? It'll change the way you think of the parshios of Sefer Dvarim forever. Here's what he said, homiletically. These are the words that Moshe said. Moshe says, These are the words Moshe gave. I'm davening with you to Hashem. Why are we davening now? Because it's the end of the year. It's the heel of the year. In a moment, Re'e, we're going to see Shoftim, Abitav is Bonunu Azosa Shemelach Bemishpat Yamid Aretz. We're going to see the Shofet, the great judge in the sky, Hashem. Why? Kiseite, because this year, we're leaving this year, it's ending. Kisavo, the new year, hopefully for the good, is upon us. Nitzavim, and we're going to stand before Hashem in judgment. Vayelech, we have to follow in his ways. Hazinu, we listen, and if we do, then we'll merit for this bracha. So homiletically, the Yitav Lev said, if you just follow the names of the parshios, you see the whole formula for Chodesh Elul, you see the whole prescription for how we go through this month of Elul, taking us all the way through the period of the Yamim Norayim. Okay, we'll do our usual overview of the parsha, which we've obviously begun, and then we'll try to get into a specific pesukim, and this week I'll actually try to get into the specific pesukim. The, um, so it begins with this notion of our free will, not Pachir Chavshus, and the Rambam's formulation, Rishus, our limitless possibility of defining who we are and who we're meant to be and the path of how to get there. But no matter who we are and who we're meant to be, that includes observing Torah and mitzvos, which the Torah goes on to tell us, Yishmaitem la'asos, Asher lifnechem, Hayom. I think it's a theme that's repeated throughout this parsha, the notion of Hayom. Because the greatest inspiration is to recognize our frailty, our mortality. When you realize how temporary life is, it should drive us to make the right choices. Don't procrastinate. Don't push it off till later. We mentioned last week the Chavetz Chaim. V'yata Yisrael, ma'ashem Tshuva is embedded in the word v'yata, now, hayom, today. Don't say, I'll get to it tomorrow, next week, next month. When I retire, I'll start going to the class. When I have time, I'll start learning and making it to minion. If I, if I can find a hole in my schedule, I'll volunteer. We procrastinate. That sense of machar, machar, tomorrow. Amalek is machar, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. For us, it's hayom, today. Mortality, frailty, vulnerability, being finite, drives us to achieve. And that's the bracha within the sense of hayom. That's why we see the word hayom repeated over and over and over again. Third our parsha. 
the Torah has a big emphasis. One of the themes we're going to go through right now is to avoid the, the sanctity of the land and to avoid those who inhabit the land with their corrupt values. It's so easy to assimilate into the values of those who host us. Unfortunately and tragically, we're seeing that now more than ever in Jewish history, that our host nation, as kind as they are, to a certain degree, their kindness is what's killing us. But as kind as they are and welcoming as they are, it's so easy to assimilate and to lose our, to lose our values. Rasalovechik talked about his grandson Raftorsky elaborated when he talked about an attitude to certain isms that are going on in the world today, that even the observant Torah community has to a high degree assimilated our values. The discomfort we have with certain things within Torah, even if we're willing to keep it. Someone recently wrote an article about how we have to apologize for Torah. It was a controversial article that others responded to. But that political correctness or this discomfort is a result of our assimilated values even within our observant Torah life. That's the power, the influence, the impact of a host nation. So the Torah is very cautious. When you move to Israel, you got to get rid of the values that are against us, get rid of those people. If they want to live side by side with us, if they're willing to embrace Hashem's blueprint for the world for them, they don't have to convert to Judaism. As not, Judaism was not just meant for the Jews, it was meant to inform the world. It's a Beis Elohim, it's a, it, the, the Beis HaMikdash was welcoming for Jews and Gentiles alike, for everybody. Eretz Yisrael welcomes anyone who's willing to live Hashem's prescription for the blueprint for the world. But somebody who wants to preserve their idolatrous practices, their values which are incongruous and consistent with ours, we have a mitzvah to drive them out, because if we don't, we are at, we are at great risk. And that's how the parsha continues. We have to destroy all of the places that idolatry has been practiced. Where have they been practiced? Rabbi Soloveitchik has a very interesting insight over here. He says, when the Torah describes the type of places where idolatry has been practiced, it uses very flowery, very poetic words. On the lofty mountains, on the hills, under every lush tree. When Judaism portrays pagan worship, it projects it against a specific landscape. High verdant hills, under the shade of green foliage, and the blossoming gardens. This type of worship avails itself in the ecstatic moment, in the aesthetic mood. Beauty may produce a state of exaltation and an overflow of emotion. By encountering a fair landscape, a lovely scene, one feels attracted to the object of adoration, a deity. This technique has been rejected by Judaism. Either the religious experience flows from a heart filled to the brim with love of God, from a soul stirred to its innermost roots, or it's non-existent and artificially produced. The Rav says it's not a coincidence when we find description of idolatry, it's always with an emphasis on the language of the aesthetic, the external, the superficial beauty. Because so much of idolatry is confusing the superficial beauty, the aesthetic beauty of thinking that that which you are admiring has power, turning it into a deity. So the landscape, the pasture, the constellations, the moon, whatever it is you're admiring for its beauty, you then think has a certain power. And Judaism recoils and Judaism rejects exactly that. To us, it's not about the external or the superficial. For us, it's about the internal, the panemius, the connecting to the Rebbe Shalom. You can't see him, you can't feel him, you can't hear him, you can't smell him, you can't touch him. And where do we connect? Through our heart and through our neshama, which are not external, superficial organs or, or, um, or ways of connecting. And he continues the Rav. The Jewish service distinguishes itself by its utter simplicity and the absence of any cultural ceremonial elements. 
It lacks the solemnity and magnificence of the Byzantine Greek Orthodox service. The moment of awestruck wonder of the Roman Catholic Mass, the rhythm and the streamlined quality of the Protestant church ceremony. It's nothing but a dialogue between God and man, a conversation, ordinary in its beginning, simple in its unfolding, and unceremoniously organized at its conclusions. Now, this is the brisker approach to davening. You know, maybe the German approach with choirs and might be a little different than the, what the Rav is describing. But what the Rav is describing is that unlike these other religions who are pomp and circumstance and ceremony and ritual, davening is just, you're just talking to Hashem. There's no pomp and circumstance. It's avodah shebelev. It's the service of the heart. It is, it is it, admired for its simplicity. It's not complex. It's not aesthetic. It's not externally beautiful. It's the simplicity of it. And he writes, There was never an attempt to use architectural designs like vaulted halls, half-dark spaces, and lofty Gothic sweep, decorative effects such as stained glass through which light filters, losing its living brightness and mingling with magical darkness, or tonal effects from hardly perceptible to triumphant hymn singing that suggest to the worshiper on the one hand the great mystery and on the other hand the heavenly bliss of the God-man encounter. Right, that's not part. We have we have stained glass windows. Okay, I guess in Brisk they didn't have stained glass windows. But in terms of the emphasis on the design, how ornate and how ostentatious the aesthetic of it, it's supposed to be simple and to promote the simplicity of the davening experience. That it's humble. That it's just man and God. That it's just me and Hashem in an intimate rendezvous. It's the avodah should believe it's of the heart. So I think it's very beautiful. It's an interesting insight. When the Torah talks about idolatry and pagan worship, it uses these flowery terms, the aesthetic, the superficial, because that's what, that's what is so important. That's the core of idolatry, as opposed to Yahadus, which is simplicity. Judaism sees in all these aesthetic motifs, which are designed to, intim- to intimate the greatness and affability of God, merely extraneous means of creating a fugitive mood which will disappear with the departure of the worshiper from the cathedral into the fresh air and sunshine. Instead, Judaism concentrates on feelings which flow not from the outside, but from within the personality, on emotions which are exponents of much more deep-seated experiences, enhanced not by an external stimuli, but by the inner awareness. If your whole religious experience is only in that magnificently beautiful place, the moment you leave the cathedral, the church, with its pomp and circumstance and ritual and ceremony, then you can't bring that religious experience with you. But if the religious experience is defined by its simplicity, you could be on the side of the road driving up to the Catskills hopping mincha because the sun is setting. You could be in your office, you could be at the airport, you could be in shul, but the religious experience carries over because it was never defined by and it was never conditional on the aesthetic, the beauty, the external, and so on. I think it's a very, very interesting of the Rav contrasting the other religions and and ours. Um, Torah talks about the centrality of the land of Israel, of Yerushalayim. Very interestingly, it doesn't tell us where it is. It doesn't tell us exactly where it is. I believe Tag speaks about this. I think David Foreman has a fantastic video on it. It gives us a hint. Check it out. Inquire after it and get there. Where is the there? And how do you inquire after it? We may talk about that this Shabbos. But very interesting, there are hints along the way, but it's up to us to pursue it, to um, inquire after it, to look for it, and to be able to get there. We have the halachas of private altars. Anyone learning the daf? I've been covering this uh, very recently, the notion of 
of Abama, um, when we didn't have the central worship of the Mishkan settled in one place for a long period of time, or the Beis Hamikdash, we were allowed to erect our own barbecues and have a Bama Katana. Certain times in history it's permitted, certain times of history it is forbidden. The notion of the private altar and the uh, public altar, which really is a metaphor for centralized authority versus personal autonomy, which are uh, catchwords of our time, but not for now. And the extension of that, which is, by the way, the permission to eat meat, and so on and so forth. Um, Torah tells us where we eat uh, these different foods and the purpose of bringing them. And in the context of telling us that we're allowed to eat the foods, tells us something very interesting. What are you not allowed to eat? Rakadam lo sochelu al kamayim. You can't eat the blood. Why can't you eat the blood? Rashi says something very interesting here on you can't eat the blood. Sorry, Rashi later in the context of Kashrus talks about why you can't eat the blood. So why can't you eat the blood? Rashi says something amazing. Later, our parasha continue, contains the mitzvah of Kashrus, keeping kosher. And there it says, Be strong, be vigilant. Don't give in to the desire to eat the blood. Be strong, resist, don't eat it, so it'll be good for you and for your children. What does it have to do with our children? Eating blood, what would that have to do with our children? So the Kliyakar says, Blood is the symbol of cruelty. Blood is the symbol of death. We use it in our modern vernacular. Blood is the image, it's the symbol of cruel, of harsh, of anger, person gets angry, their, their face fills with blood. We talk about somebody who spilled blood, we talk about people who have blood on their hands, blood is violence. Says the Kliyakar, you are what you eat. One of the principles of Kashrus, that we absorb the qualities of the things that we eat. You are what you eat. And if we were to consume blood, then we would be cruel. So in order to be, have good for ourselves and for our children, be vigilant, be strong, strengthen yourself, don't eat the blood. Because if we would, if it would enter our system, it would contaminate our system, we would gain that quality. Which is why we have the whole mitzvah of malicha, we salt the animal and we get rid of, the, and we get rid of its blood. This notion of avoiding, absorbing the quality of cruelty is fundamental to the Jewish people. We're prohibited to marry. Torah prohibits us from marrying certain nations because they were cruel. They, when we asked for help, they didn't extend themselves to us. We're not allowed to marry. Because we can't mix the DNA of somebody who's cruel into our DNA when we are meant to be kind. It's meant to be built into who we are that we're kind. And that we find also in our Pasha. Because later in our Pasha, the Torah records the halacha of the ir nidachas. In the context of this driving out the idolatry, that you can't allow corrupt values to remain in your midst because it's contagious, you're going to end up following them. Torah has the story of the ir nidachas, which is a very difficult story. As Western-minded people, it's very hard for us to picture. But a city which practices idolatry, you have to obliterate. You have to destroy. You have to get rid of. That seems itself to be very cruel. So the Torah says, It says, 
what to do to an Irni Dachas, the city of idolatry, and recognizing that after we level the city, it might elicit a sense of cruelty from us, the Torah Hashem promises us, don't worry, Hashem will give you mercy and will be merciful. What do those words mean in our parsha? Hashem will give us rachamim. So the Gemara Yevamos, the Gemara Yevamos says, There are three discernible characteristics or qualities within the Jewish people. Rachamanim, Baishanim, Gomle Chasadim. Three distinguishing characteristics that we are compassionate, that we have a capacity for shame, that we still blush in a world that never blushes, and that we are predisposed, we have an instinct to perform acts of loving kindness. The Gemara Beit Salamid Beis similarly says, If you see somebody who's kind, who's compassionate, then you know they in fact descend from Avram Avinu, they are the progeny of Avram Avinu. And somebody who's somebody who's harsh and cruel, who's unkind, then you should be suspect of whether they really descend from Avram Avinu. The Rambam in Hechos Yisurei Burit Bia and Perakutes goes so far as to say that in fact you meet somebody and they're cruel. Somebody asks them for kindness and they reject it. They're unkind. By the way, notice the Gemara does not say, Kol al Yisrael. What does it say? Kol al Habrios. Because the Jewish innate, what's supposed to be the Jewish innate, instinctive, predisposition for kindness is not limited to be directed to Jewish people. It's how we interact with the brios, with all of God's creation. From stepping on an ant, to stepping on a homeless person, to turning away somebody who asks us for a favor or needs something from us. Gemara does not say anyone who's kind to the Jewish people descends from Avram. It says anyone who's kind to the brios, to all of creation. So the Ramam and Hechaz Yisurabiyah goes so far as to say you meet someone and they're, they're cruel. They're unkind. They're unwilling to help. You can actually challenge their lineage. You're allowed to challenge whether in fact they're Jewish. The burden of proof is on them to prove their yichus, their Judaism, because if they are unkind and cruel, that goes against our tradition that we have within us this innate sense of, of kindness. This is who we're meant to be. So therefore, the Kliyakar says, you can't drink the blood why can you not drink the blood? Because you are what you eat. We are meant to be, we are meant to be Rachamanim, Baishanim, Gomle, Chasadim. And if you were to consume blood, we would absorb those qualities and we would become that, we would become that ourselves. Good. Torah continues. Our Parsha continues. About eating meat. One of my favorite sections of the Torah. Where does all of this take place? I think we've talked about before. Torah always identifies the word simcha with two other words. Which two words? Hashem. Whenever you see the word simcha in the Torah, you see it with the words lifnei Hashem. Why? Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested. Because the most authentic form of joy is knowing you stand before God. Where does anxiety come from? Stress, anxiety, worry, depression, sadness. It's the result of feeling, I don't know why this is happening and maybe this won't work out and what's going to be and maybe there's no rhyme or reason for it. And the moment that a person realizes 
that there's an infinite omnipotent being, that the Rebona Shalom rules the world, and that He is controlling our lives, that everything that happens, both that which we welcome and that which we don't welcome, happens for a reason and for meaning. There's no greater sense of simcha than understanding that there's a reason. So therefore, when you're lifnei Hashem, the feeling of being lifnei Hashem generates within a person the feeling of simcha. And the Rav described this, that's why mourning, Avelis, is incompatible with Yantif. Yantif interrupts mourning. Shabbos does not interrupt mourning. Shiva, by definition, includes a Shabbos. You mourn for seven days, by definition, it includes Shabbos. Because what's the theme of Shabbos? Oneg, pleasure, good shalant, a delicious kigel, a fantastic shluf. Oneg, pleasure of Shabbos. Pleasure doesn't contradict grieving. The person grieving, in fact, sometimes never eats better than during Shiva. The person grieving also is desperate and could use a good shluf even during Shiva. So pleasure doesn't contradict Shiva, but the feeling of yantif, the mitzvah of yantif is simcha, not oneg. Simcha is lifnei Hashem. That's a contradiction to the feelings that come from a sense of, of grieving. Those two. He writes, On a festival, the laws of mourning are nullified in account of the joy associated with the day. On a festival, all the Jewish people stand before Hashem. The festival's importance is identified with man's rejoicing before his Creator. The joy is an emotional expression of the human experience. It is the appearance before Hashem that fully annuls the mourning. Mourning and standing before Hashem are mutually exclusive. When you're in a state of mourning, you davka feel at a distance from Hashem. You feel that you're not... Um, Hashem is inaccessible to you. Which is why, what's the greeting that we offer the mourner when we leave? Hamakom yenachi meschem. We use the name of Hashem of Hamakom. Hamakom means not a feeling of closeness, but describing Hashem as the place, which is from a perspective and from a feeling of distance. Okay. Then we have... Then we have... Then we have these laws of idolatry that we referenced. We're going to go through a false prophet and the Mesus and Mediach, somebody who causes us to go astray. And, uh, and then we get to this promise from Hashem. Bonam Atem Hashem. We're on page 1010. 10-10. 10-10 wins. Page 1010, Perak Yidalad Pasuk Aleph. A very fantastic Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Bonam Atem Hashem Elokechem. All of this. Why am I telling you all of this, says Moshe? Why is Hashem commanding you all of this? Don't follow in the idolatrous practices and don't walk in the ways of the pagan and don't give in to superstition and don't follow, don't be corrupted by their values. Why am I telling you all this? Because Again, this seems to be a non sequitur. You're children of Hashem and therefore don't cut yourself and don't make a bald spot between your eyes when someone dies. What in the world does one thing have to do with the other? You're children of Hashem... Don't mourn or grieve excessively. Right? That's what the Pasuk is forbidding. We understand, Chazal interpret the Gemara, we shouldn't make agudos agudos. You're not allowed to have competing or conflicting practices within one city. The Gemara elaborates to Batei Din within one city, within two cities, but the principle, the prohibition of Losiskodudu is you can't have competing practices why? Rashi says because it looks like there are two separate Torahs from Hashem. And that obviously dilutes, that obviously is a bizayon to Hashem. That not that we have one sacred tradition, as if there are multiple traditions, undermines the um, authenticity and the authority of Torah. 
And therefore, we have a prohibition that is enforced. These shilas come up today, losis go to do. What if you have one shul that has Sfardim and Ashkenazim and Ashtibal minion and this minion? Is it losis go to do that we're doing all of these practices in one place? Is that losis go to do? So there's a terim if it's different minyanim. How do you apply this halacha within one minion? I remember at my brother-in-law's Ufruf at the Jewish Center in Manhattan. I had just come back from my in Israel and I had accepted upon myself to stand for Kriya Satora. I was standing for Kriya Satora and the rabbi sent the gabai over to me to tell me to sit down. And I said, well, the Maharami Rudenborough, I started going through all the why I was standing. And he said to me, the rabbi afterwards, that's nice, but the minnak here is to sit. You're the only one standing and there's a potential problem of losus go to do. And I later looked, Ramosha has a tshuva of exactly that. If you stand when everyone else is sitting, if you sit when everyone else is standing, losus go to do. Your problem of agudos, agudos, it looks like there are parallel competing tracks as if there's multiple Judaisms. There is one sacred Judaism, not multiple. How do you reconcile that with the different customs that we have is a separate topic for another time. So that's the rabbi's interpretation of losus go to do in a halachic way. But losus go to do, the simple meaning of the pasuk is you can't grieve excessively. Someone lost a loved one, it's horrible. It's beyond painful. But you can't cut yourself. You can't cut yourself. And the Mepharshim explained, what does that have to do with Banim Atem Lashem Lokeichem? Why does a person grieve excessively? Because they feel, I've lost someone and I'll never ever see them again. It's a permanent, permanent loss. It's a permanent loss. There's no meaning, there's no purpose to my loss. There's no world to come. I'll never be reunited with that person. And therefore, that feeling of loss is so profound. It's so acute. It's so great. They're inconsolable. And they grieve excessively by cutting themselves. So the Torah says, whoa, it's not, you're not the victim of randomness and chance. There is meaning, there is purpose to the world. This happened for a reason, no matter how painful it may be. You're the children of Hashem, and there's a world to come, and you will have, you'll have a resurrection of the dead. You will be reunited with your loved one, and they're not ever really gone. People don't die, bodies die. People live forever, the neshama is with you forever. So if you believe, if you fundamentally accept that we're children of Hashem, then you could never grieve excessively. Because as painful as the experience of loss is, you realize that there is Hashem, we are His children. Everything is for a reason. And that we will merit to be reunited one day, we should not grieve excessively. This notion of is so very, 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 very important to us and to all of the, the feelings that we're supposed to have. This is a very, very powerful feeling. The Mishnah Nova says, All of Hashem's creation is precious to Hashem. We're all created in His image, but the Jewish people are even more precious. Hashem is closer with us because we are called His children. Hashem calls us His children. He has an even greater love. I love all children. But I love more, my children more than I love other children. I love my nephews and nieces tremendously more than I love strange children. But I don't love anyone as much as I love my own children. Because Baruch says, Banim atem Hashem You are my children. That's the metaphor that Davka he employs in order to instill within us a sense that we are his beloved children. And we are about to invoke that metaphor back at Hashem when, starting Chodesh Elul, Soon when we'll stand before him. We say, Hayom haras olam. Today, and Rosh Hashanah, after each time we blow the shofar, in Chazar Sashats, we'll say, Hayom haras olam. We'll sing it, but I'll spare you. 
Today is the birthday of the world. And we ask Hashem to have pity on us. How? If we're your children, be compassionate like a father has compassion on a child. And if Nebuch were just your slave, your servant, our eyes turn to you. And if we're not your children, we're just your avadim, but our eyes turn to you, we long for you, and we daven to you that you see us favorably. The Satma Rebbe, Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum, and his Divra Yol asked the following, Why do we say that we turn our eyes to him for if we are in the paradigm of Avadim? If we're Banim, then we don't have to look to him. Im Kebanim, if we're your children, we're good. We're good. Because parents love children unconditionally. I could do no wrong. No matter what I did to you, God, throughout the year, if you see me as your child... I'm good to go. Parents love children unconditionally. But in Ka'avadim, but if you see me through the paradigm of your slave, then, then we turn to you. So ask the Satmar Rebbe, why only then? Even if we're Hashem's children, we also have no other choice but to lean on Hashem, to look to Him. He is the source of all. He is the solution to all. So why do we only describe Hashem as the solution to whom we turn our eyes from the perspective of Avadim, not from the perspective of Banim? That's the Satma Rebbe's question. And it's very important to know the answer because we're about to sing this two days of Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and to know what it means. So he says the following. He explains it based on the Gemara Kedushin. The Gemara Kedushin is Daf Lamed Vav, quotes a Machlokis. Pligi Barab Meir Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda Sover, in Yisrael Osem Ritzon Hashem Kriyim Banim. When are we called slaves and when are we called Hashem's children? So when children are being obedient or um, following in the footsteps of their parents, so their parents are proud to identify with them and introduce them as these are my children. And when the children are disobedient and the children could care less what the parents have to say and they go on their own path and they disregard and they neglect and they're disrespectful, then the parents say, I don't know who these strangers are. Kavadim. And Hashem says the same attitude with us. If we act like His children, He identifies with us like our Father. And if we neglect what He wants for us and we don't treat Him like a father, then He treats us like Avadim. That's the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says, Hashem, Banam Atem Hashem, our Pasuk here is conditional. If we have that attitude, then Hashem sees us as Banam. If not, He sees us as Avadim. Rabbi Meir holds, Ben Kachu Ben Kach Banam. Rav Meir holds, either way we're called Hashem's children. Now, in Allah between Rav Meir and Rav Yehuda, how do we paskin? In Klale Hashas, in the rules of Psach Halacha, how do we paskin? Kaim Alam B'chol Duchta, we paskin all over. Pligi Rav Meir, Rav Yehuda, Allah Rav Yehuda. That the Halacha is like Rav Yehuda. And why is the Halacha not like Rav Meir? So the Rebbe points to the Gemara in Erevin. The Gemara in Erevin says, There was no one in Rav Meir's generation like him. In fact, Rav Meir only had one real sparring partner in Torah. Anyone know who it was? Not his father. His father was Rav Hanani ben Shadion. Who was his, so to say, equal who became kind of a sparring partner in Torah? His wife, Beruria. The Gemara tells us very interestingly, of Buria's greatness and her equal, 
right? We've, we discussed this in the past, in the personalities of Tanakh. We talked about Bruya and how Bruya, Bruya's brother went off the derech, the Medrash says, because the Chachamim embraced her opinion over his in a certain complex area of Tum He ended up running away with a group of Listim. He ended up essentially going off the derech. Bruya was an exceptional scholar. Reb Meir was very sharp. Reb Meir was known among his peers as being very, very sharp, very brilliant, in some ways ahead of his peers, but also antagonized his peers as a result. And it was Bruria, it was his wife, who was his, so to say, intellectual equal, and to a degree, sparring partner. So the Gemara Erevin tells us, there was no one in Reb Meir's generation like him. The Gemara there says, so why is Halacha not like Reb Meir? Because in order for, to be able to vote that Halacha is with a certain person, you have to understand their position. Reb Meir's thinking was so far ahead of theirs, they couldn't really understand exactly how he arrives at his conclusion. They didn't vote for his position. So we don't pass him like Reb Meir here. So says the Sama Rebbe, Halacha is not like Reb Meir, only down here, where we can't, we can't keep up with his thinking. But in the world to come, where the Rebbe Shalom understands Reb Meir's thinking, and he's such an intellectual superior, then Halacha is like Reb Meir there. So therefore, what does that mean? That Eitzel HaKadosh Baruch Hu, from God's perspective, Reb Meir's right. That Ben Kach Hu Ben Kach Kri Banim. From down here, Reb Yehuda's right. We're only Hashem's children if, what? If we're living the right way. But from Hashem's perspective, Halach is like Reb Meir. That no matter what, Banim Atem Lashem. Says the Sama Rebbe, now we understand the Pshat. But that's the pshat. That if we're if we're kibonim, so karachim avabonim, everybody agrees. If we're acting like your children, you'll treat us like your children. We're good to go. But if we're acting like avadim, we're neglecting you, Hashem. We're not acting as your faithful children. Then einenu lechas lios. Don't paskin from our perspective, because then we're in trouble, like Rabbi Yehuda. But einenu lechas lios. Look at the situation, Hashem, from the Beisdin Shamala. Paskin like you do upstairs. How do you paskin upstairs? Like Reb Meir. And that's what we say, Ka'or Mishpatenu, reveal the Mishpat. Bring the perspective of justice from the perspective of upstairs, like Reb Meir, that Benkach Benkach Kruyim Banim, Umemeila Tarachamenu Karachim Avabanim, and then we'll be good to go, and then we'll be okay either way. So normally we pass like Rabbi Yehuda over a mayor, but on this issue, it's possible the Rashba writes in a tshuva. The Rashba writes in a tshuva that even though we generally follow Rabbi Yehuda over a mayor, in this case we pass like Rabbi Meir, that benkach benkach, we are always the children of Hashem. Sam Rebbe explains one more thing with this. The Gemara tells the story that Rabbi Meir was so great. He's known as Rabbi Meir Balhanes. Gemara tells the story Many of the stories that surround Reb Meir and Buria cannot be taught in elementary school or high school. 
They're very uh, salacious stories. So one of the stories was that Buria's sister, of Hanani Bichajim's daughter, was taken by the Romans into a brothel and brought to the brothel to, 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 uh, to work there. So Buria says to her, Mary, you got to go in there and rescue her. you got to get her out. So how does he go in there to rescue her? He goes as if he is, um, as if he's going to solicit the services of the brothel. I mean, again, imagine Rav Moshe Feinstein, the Rav, the Babacher Rebbe. We've got something that we need you to do. There's a Jewish girl and she needs to be rescued, you know. This is the great Rav Meir is going in there like that. And the Gemara tells this whole story that Berea's sister, he decided that he'll solicit specifically her services. And if she agrees, then she's been lost to that world. But if she hesitates, then he knows that she, he should still rescue her. So when he solicits her services, she explains that it's the time of the month, that she's not really available, and he, she, he should go to somebody else. And he understands that she's acting modestly so that he can rescue her. And how exactly he rescues her, he invokes certain great mysticism, and he rescues her. The Gemara tells the whole story. And from here, the Gemara learns that he, he gains the, na- the name, the title, the appellation. What is he called? Rav Meir Balanes. You know, because organizations have been named for him who solicit your tzakah. Rav Meir Balanes. And the Gemara says a very amazing statement that if you ever are in need of salvation, if you're trying to rescue a girl from a brothel or anything less than that salvation, then what you should do is invoke Eloka de Rabbi Meir Aneni, a whole formula. You say, God of Rabbi Meir, save me. And that this formula is helpful. This is how we appeal to Hashem to save us. Eloka de Rabbi Meir Aneni. That if you say this, then Hashem will come through. So Gemara Navodizara. So the Sama Rebbe, at the end of this piece I was reading to you, says, why are we invoking Rebbe Meir here? Aloka der Meir Aneni. Not just because Rebbe Meir created the precedent that he saved somebody, he got Hashem's attention, but because if in fact we pass him like Rebbe Meir, Banim Atem, what we're saying is Aloka de Rebbe Meir, not Aloka de Rebbe Yehuda. Not God of Rebbe Yehuda, who if I'm not worthy, you're going to look at me like a slave. But God of Rebbe Meir, that no matter how I behave, you see me as your child. That you'll love me unconditionally as a parent. So dafka, it's not aloka to Rabbi Yehuda aneni, it's aloka to Rabbi Meir aneni, the God of Rabbi Meir, who holds benkach, benkach, banim, no matter what, we are the children of Hashem. And dafka, the God of Rabbi Meir aneni, because even if I'm unworthy, see me as your child, that you love me unconditionally. We actually have in our shul, we have a member whose name is Mayor. His last name is Balhanes. His family, the family name is Balhanes. I call them the Balhanesim. His family name is Balhanes. His name is Rebbe Mayor. So there's a tradition that if you lose something, that's why you see these ads all the time. So throughout the last several years, every time my family's lost something, I find our wonderful, he's a physician in the shul, he's a doctor. I find Mayor Balhanes and I give him money to give tzedakah and I ask him to daven for me and every time we found what we lost. Aneni, Aloka de Rabbi Meir, Aneni, Meir Balhanes. We have our very own uh, Meir Balhanes in our, in our shul. Benkach, Benkach, Kriyim, Bonim. Okay, continuing. Kiam Kadosh Atol Hashem Because we are a holy nation to God. We are an Am Kadosh to God. And Hashem says, Sorry. God designated us. We are His children. 
we're not absorbing and adopting the corrupt ways of the nations that host us or that inhabited the land before we got there. Get rid of the idolatry, get rid of the pagan worship, and exclusively serve and feel we are Hashem. Why? Because we are His children, and we are a holy nation, and Hashem chose us. And why did He chose us? What are we meant? Who are we meant to be? We are an Am Segula. It has been said, we are an Am Segula. Sadly, many have turned us into an Am Shel Segulos, instead of an Am Segula. What are Segulas? Segulas are these fake, counterfeit, inauthentic, superstitious practices that have seeped into our Jewish tradition. As Rav Shechter often says, Hashem took us out of Egypt. He took us out of the land of superstition. And He told us, only serve and feel Hashem. And what do we do? We follow all kinds of silly superstitions, like red strings, which are darche amori, and like opening books to try to find an answer to a question, and like all kinds of superstitions that we have. Don't step over a child, they'll stop growing. Don't pour this way, don't tie your shoes that way, don't look this way, don't drop the mirror that way, don't walk around barefoot that way. We're not an amshel segulos, we're an am segula. And the difference in Amshel Segulas is a nation of superstition. That's not who we are and who we're meant to be. We defer and submit only to the power of Hashem. We are an Am Segula. What does it mean to be an Am Segula? So the Mephoshim here will explain. Segula means the mitzvos. The way we are an Am Segula is Hashem gave us the mitzvos. That's how we are His treasured people. Rabbi Salavitchik writes here in Am Segula. There are two types of sanctity. Now which comes to you by inheritance, and in addition, each Jew is given sanctity in his own right. First, there's the sanctity of the patriarchs, which is our heritage passed on from generation to generation, beginning with our forefather, Avram, down to this very day. Like the Torah itself, sanctity is a tradition handed down from generation to generation. Second, there's the sanctity of the self every Jew has by right. In addition to the sanctity that is an Israelite inherits from his forefathers, he has another sanctity given to him by the Holy One, blessed be he, who gives to every. Here, there's no distinction between a scholar and an uneducated between a person of high character and a simple person, between a Jew and a meanly one. All share equally in the sanctity that belongs to Israel. Right? These two degrees are in the Pasuk. That's what the Rav is saying. We have a dual parallel relationship with Hashem. There's a component of our relationship with Hashem, which is the result of my parents having a relationship with Hashem. We're part of, we're part of covenantal community of corporate Israel. And then there's my own individual relationship. We see this also, I don't think the Rav says it here, but we see this also in the beginning of our Shemona Esrei. We dive into Hashem. Baruch to Hashem Elokeinu ve'elokei avaseinu. He's Elokeinu, but he's Elokei avaseinu. On the one hand, he's our God. I have my own unique, personal, individual process of discovery of Hashem and feeling of His presence in my life. And he's also Elokei avaseinu. There's both components. If he's only Elokei avaseinu, you're just keeping a tradition from your ancestors, it's going to dry out. It's going to get old. It's going to be irrelevant. You're going to move on. If you think it's only your God, you have this creative new relationship with Hashem and you have no respect for tradition and heritage and legacy, then you're going to violate the whole system of Torah where we come from. Torah demands the balance between these two. And, and the balance between the sacred tradition, but also the modern adaptation, the personal, the individual, the creativity of discovering Hashem ourselves. There's Elokeinu, the creative journey of discovering Hashem ourselves, and there's Elokei Avoseinu, at the same time, embracing that sense of tradition and that sense of where we come from, where we come from as well. 
And the Rav goes on talking about the, these two parallel traditions and how we, they find expression in so many different ways. The Kedusha within us comes from both places. The process of discovery and embracing the process of tradition. We then get into Kashras, a little bit about why we keep kosher, keeping kosher, discipline of Kashras. And then the bottom of page 1012, by the way, we're not going to get into Psukim. I see. Getting worse, not better with time in doing this. Aser Taser is called Zarechas. I'll leave you with one more thought. Aser Taser. Aser Taser is called Tuah Zarech. Ayote Sada Shana Bishana. The mitzvah of taking tithe off of our produce and the Achaltof Ne Hashem Lokecha. You bring it to the place God has designated, the Shakein Shemosham, the place where you could feel His intense presence, which again, the Torah doesn't tell us. That was the the Shechnot Tidrashu Uvas Hashem. You got to find it. You got to inquire after it. You got to look for it. Never tells us. Gives us clues, but doesn't tell us. And what happens when we get there? What's the purpose of it? Laman Tilmad Liyaras Hashem Lokecha Bechol Hayamim. The purpose of separating this tithe and bringing it to Yushalayim and eating it there, my Sashani, is why? Laman Tilmad, so that we learn to have a sense of awe of Hashem. It's very interesting. The words Laman Tilmad, it feels like are extra here. Just say you bring it there so that you express or practice your Hashemayim. Hashem told you to. He says jump, you say how high. You brought your stuff all the way to Yushalayim as an expression of your Yerashemayim. What do the words Laman Telmad mean here? So that you learn. So the Ibn Ezra here writes, the Ibn Ezra writes, Laman Telmad, Hatam Maducha. What does that mean? Vatam Shainis Lios Laman Telmad, Ketam Egla Melumada. Quotes a Pasik from Hoshea, Vatam Regilus, Vuayasha Be'enai. Writes the Ibn Ezra, when you're Staying in the holy place, they will teach you. A non-obvious meaning is, you will become accustomed to. Laman tilmad. Yerashemayim is something which is learned, which you become accustomed to. It's not an epiphany. It's not this moment reaction. Laman tilmad. That through our practices, through the way we lead our lives, we learn Yerashemayim. Talk a certain way, think a certain way, dress a certain way. Here the Torah is telling us, how do you acquire Yerashemayim? How do you acquire living with a sense of the knowledge, the presence of Hashem in your life? It's not a philosophical concept, an abstract, but Laman Tilmad. If you learn to dress a certain way and talk a certain way, do certain honesty in business and to be kind, we condition ourselves to feel the presence of Hashem and the result is living with Yiras Shemaim. The Chizkuni on this Pasuk also. Chizkuni says... When you make your way there, when you exert the effort, when you adopt the system of Torah, you will, you will learn. This is the goal of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim doesn't strike you. You don't simply have this epiphany. You don't simply, it's not a philosophical submission. Yerushalayim is how we live our life in thought, speech, and action, and we condition ourselves. Laman Tilmad. The Ibn Ezra, the Chizkuni are both saying from this Pasuk, Laman Tilmad liyura. You learn Yerushalayim. And how do you learn Yerushalayim? By going to holy places and being exposed to holy people, by performing holy practices, by conditioning ourselves to live holy lives. I'll end with a great insight 
Rav Menachem ben Zion Zaks, in his Sefer Menachem Zion and Pirkei Yavah says the following. The Mishnah in Pirkei Yavah says, V'yimor shamayim aleichem. Mora shamayim, yir shamayim should be aleichem. He notes, it doesn't say, V'hi lachem mora shamayim. You should have yir shamayim. It says, Yihi mora shamayim aleichem. Yir shamayim should be on you. And he says, we see this elsewhere, the Gemara Brachos tells us when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was sick and his students came to him and they said, give us a bracha, he said, So why does it always say, Aleichem? It should say, you should have Yerashemayim. Why does it say, Yerashemayim should be on you? So Rabbi Nachman Metzion Zak says, the idea is that we should be living our lives. Yehnikar, that we live our lives in such a way that someone looks at you and says, wow, that's someone with Yer Shemayim. I just interacted with someone in business. They went above and beyond. They were honest. They kept their word. Clearly, they have a sense of fear of awe of Hashem. To wear the Yer Shemayim on our sleeve, not in a judgmental or holier than that way, but rather to wear it on our sleeve in a way that it brings other people closer. How do we achieve that? Laman Tamad, by practicing and conditioning ourselves to learn a certain, live a certain lifestyle, it will yield that result. Have a great week.